This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode is something rather special. Next week, on May the 27th, Robert Denkin and Douglas Hurley will launch on SpaceX's Crew Dragon spacecraft, lifting off on a Falcon 9 rocket to the International Space Station. The first people to launch to the International Space Station from America since the retiring of the Space Shuttle. Today's guest on the Cosmic Shed is astronaut Nicole Stott, the last person to return from being a crew member on the International Space Station back to Earth on the Space Shuttle. Nicole is a NASA engineer turned NASA astronaut and an artist, the first person to paint a watercolour painting in space on board the International Space Station. It's a particularly interesting time at NASA for human spaceflight, not only with that launch, the first launch between a private enterprise, SpaceX and NASA to launch people into space. And this week, NASA's human spaceflight chief, the head of human spaceflight at NASA, Doug Lavero, resigned. He resigned just a few days before NASA's first launch of humans into space from American soil. It's an intriguing time, but without any further ado, here is Nicole Stott, NASA astronaut and artist. Discovery now making one last reach for the stars. You were a NASA employee who became an astronaut. Can you tell me how that happened? some act of God, I think, you know, I pinch myself still that that transition occurred. When I graduated from college and wanted to go, you know, work in this world of how do rocket ships fly, NASA was my target, right? Grew up in Florida across the state from the Kennedy Space Center. I wanted to work there. And for the longest time, though, to me, the idea of astronaut just seemed far-fetched. Nobody told me I ever couldn't do it. But it seemed like this thing that, oh, wow, that's something only other special people get to do. Why would they ever pick me, right? And I'm slow. So, (laughs) you know, about nine, I think, into the 10 years of working, very fortunately, as an engineer at the Kennedy Space Center, you know, we've got the space shuttle program ramped back up and flying. We were working now on building the International Space Station. And I started thinking more about astronaut as I saw these people coming through as I was helping get ready the vehicles for them to fly. You know, 99.9% of an astronaut's job, sadly, is not flying in space. It's here on Earth. It's helping make those projects happen. It's working in support of other crews. It's training. It's, you know, getting involved with future projects. It's all that kind of stuff. I was 
already doing a lot of that as a NASA engineer. And so I spoke to my mentors and they just encouraged me to pick up the pen and fill out the application. I'll tell you, in hindsight, it makes me realize how much we sometimes just sabotage ourselves right out of really, really cool opportunities. Because that was the thing I had total control over, right? No one else was going to do that for me. So I thank these people every day. <laughs> and it really was. It was just kind of this subtle, you know, shift in, okay, I can at least apply, right? Mm. And, you know, that was the big step towards it happening. Being an astronaut requires a level of fitness. It requires a level of knowledge. But you must have, it must have been somewhere in the back of your mind that maybe, surely, I mean, I think it was always in the back of my mind because, you know, it was just such an extraordinary kind of thing to think about, right? You know, I watched the first moon landing. I have memory of that with my family. I think even at seven, you know, that is an extraordinary thing to see happening. And as a person who grew up wanting to know how things fly, I mean, I'm so thankful to parents who shared what they loved with me. You know, my mom and dad did that. My dad built and flew small airplanes. We were hanging out at the airport as kids growing up. And that love of flying got in my blood. And I think that's where it all really started. So astronauts seem to be this ultimate of flying. You know, if you were going to fly and do something that's good, astronauts seem to be that job. And I think as I matured and got older, the idea of it turned more into this place where this opportunity where maybe I could do something good. To me, it doesn't seem to hold as much value or goodness if it's just about, ooh, the adventure of launching on a rocket and floating in space. I mean, that I would not have strapped onto a rocket with 7 million pounds of exploding thrust beneath me with a seven-year-old son at home if it was just about that. And the fact that it was a job that really is about improving life on Earth, I mean, everything we're doing is about that, even though we're doing it in space. That's where the real appeal to me was. And I think that's where, as I got older, I started thinking, wow, it's more than just, ooh, astronaut. It's, this is a place where you can make a difference, too. Yeah. You took off in shuttles always? Yeah. Yeah, cool. both times was on a, a space shuttle. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool, right? It's very, you know, there's an awesomeness level to that. I feel like I can use the word um, appropriately for that experience. For, I mean, for the whole entire spaceflight thing, the looking out the window, the floating, the launching, all of it is, it's the kind of experience that deserves the word awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you did, you had a spacewalk for what, seven hours? Uh, almost. I think it was <clears throat> a little over six and a half and, right. uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the surrealist of all the surrealness of, of being in space is to go out in your own little personal spaceship. And yeah. really, it's just this between you and that void of vacuum of space is that spacesuit. And I don't know, it looks like you've got this big visor, right? And that you'd be seeing this really expansive view. But it's kind of a tiny little visor when, you know, when if you turn your head, you're just looking at the inside of your spacesuit. The whole head on the suit doesn't turn. So you have to completely turn your body to see one direction or the other. But it's awesome. Um, yeah. And then you're out there. I mean, you feel, you know, in these times of isolation, I think about it. I mean, the most isolated I ever felt was in that suit, you know, on the end of the arm, furthest person from the planet. 
And yet I felt so connected too, you know, through the calm I had, through the view, through knowing my crewmates were there for me. I mean, I think that's kind of how we have to look at what, what we're going through now is how in this isolation do we stay connected to, do we understand that connection that mm. we have? And so I was talking to Lyra, my daughter Lyra earlier about spacewalks and she was saying that she'd like to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, Agree, she, she can take me with her if she'd like to, yeah, that would yeah. be awesome. No, absolutely. <laughs> well, um, if there's room you can come, but I get okay, yeah. you first. <laughs> Um, I know. But, um, but she she'd like to go to the moon. She'd like to go to the International Space Station, but she feels like a spacewalk is too much risk. That's where the risk for her is is too much. Is it yeah. worth the risk? I think so. I think so. I mean, we're very deliberate about it. It's kind of like launch and landing, and you know, all of these kind of places where people think about astronauts and spaceflight. They don't tend to think so much about the work that's going on there and, you know, what we're doing in between those dramatic events, right? But I think we put everything we humanly possibly can into ensuring the safety of those, those kinds of things. But there is risk, right? But on that spacewalk, I can tell you, I show a picture in, in a lot of my presentations of, there's one picture where I'm, it's all black behind me. I'm hanging on with one hand to the end of the space station, right? And I've got tethers on and stuff. The visor's up. My crewmate, Danny Olivas, took this picture uh, of me, you know, smiling inside the suit and waving. And my mom looks at that picture and she doesn't get joy from that picture like I do. She looks at it and she's like, NASA should have a two hand on the space station rule at all times, you know? And I'm like, mom, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm waving, but I've got these tethers. Yeah. There is a diligence, a deliberateness to it from the time you are getting into the suit to the time you are coming out of it inside that. I mean, it makes me really excited about what's humanly possible that we can do those kinds of things, that we can support each other, you know, have our crewmates helping us do it. And that's, I think that's what I'd say to your daughter is that there's this human in human spaceflight that is really thoughtful about that risk and is taking it into account all the time. But even if she doesn't want to do a spacewalk, I highly recommend the whole yeah. experience. Okay, cool. <laughs> By the time she's yeah. old enough, yeah, yeah. yeah, be fine. Um, so I, what were you actually doing on the spacewalk then? What was the... Um, well, all of them in some way are, you know, are typically a mix of maintenance tasks on the outside of the station or uh, assembly and installation activities of something. And we were doing uh, a mix of that. We had a couple of these exterior payloads or these exterior science experiments that we needed to take off the outside of the station and put into the cargo bay of the space shuttle so that it could go home. And that the science guys, the researchers and scientists could get better data from it than just what it would supply while it was on the space station. And that was, you know, when you talk about the part of the spacewalk for me, um, pulling one of those boxes off the end of the station that on the ground would weigh, you know, about 900 pounds. But up there, I'm strapped onto the end of this robotic arm. You know, I could have done anything I wanted to with it, except that you know, it still has its mass. You got to be careful. So if you get it moving, it's going to take it with you, right? But to be able to stand on the end of this arm, floating, moving from the end of the station down into the payload bay with this box was just kind of an unbelievable thing to have, have yeah. happen. 
so we were doing that. And then there was this ammonia tank that we needed to remove from the station because it had failed. And in the next spacewalk, they were going to be installing a new one. And so, yeah, a mix of assembly and maintenance that you just can't do robotically on its own. There's always this mix of, you know, the robot arm helping us and, you know, the human out there doing something with it too. Going back to the emotional side of it, I don't know how long you've been on the International Space Station for before you opened the hatch and went out there, but I imagine that opening of the hatch thing is, is pretty special, right? It's really interesting, that whole psychological, emotional, and then physical kind of technical you know, side of the whole experience. And yeah, nothing prepares you for that. And we even build into the timeline something that we call translation adaptation. <laughs> so when somebody new, you know, who hasn't done a spacewalk before is coming out of the hatch and, you know, now you're not in a swimming pool that has a bottom and a side and divers all around you helping you train to do this. You're literally hanging off the bottom of the space station, you know, 250 miles below you is this beautiful planet. Otherwise there's this blackness of space and then, you know, some structure of your, your station around you. But it feels like nothingness is surrounding you, right? So not only to get the, the feel of what it's like to physically move your body in that, you know, that vacuum of space, but to you know, kind of emotionally wrap your mind around it too. Um, so translation adaptation is That's what we cool. call that. And it's cool how different people you know, respond to it differently. You painted in space. Mm-hmm. The first astronaut, in fact, the first person to paint in space. Not the first artist, as we know. No, 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 Alan no. Was there others apart from you and Alan Bean? No, there's so many. You okay. know, that's the thing. And, and I honestly don't claim first to paint in space. I painted okay. first with watercolors in space. Okay. But I would say, as far as painting, there is a, a gentleman, Richard Garriott, who flew as a spaceflight participant, um, had flown before me. His dad actually was a NASA astronaut, Owen Garriott. And Richard flew, and his mom was an artist, so he took up a mix of acrylic paints, and then he made this plastic box and put paper inside of it. And then he splattered the paint around inside and let it do whatever it would do to hit the paper. Kind of, you know, very Jackson Pollock kind mm. of art. But I, I think Richard gets to claim first painting in space. First yeah. watercolor, I can take that. But as far as artists go, it's really cool. I think your daughter would love this too. You know, I think everybody should love this because I think this really is the human in human spaceflight thing is that we're not just working there. We bring what we love there too. We live there. And to live there, you have to experience it as a human being, right? And from the very earliest space flights, um, there have been astronauts, cosmonauts like Alexei Leonov, one of the very first cosmonauts. He brought up colored pencils and sketched orbital sunrises while he was there. And a wonderful artist um, had always been. Actually, he wanted to be an artist, and it was astronaut or cosmonaut to artist is how he found himself that way. And of course, like Alan Bean, like you mentioned, he didn't do art in space. But when he retired from the astronaut office full time, that was, he devoted his life to sharing the experience through his amazing artwork. And then everywhere in between, there's been musicians. On the space station right now, there's a keyboard and a guitar and Katie might have even left up like a little flute or pan flute or something there. And 
one of my friends even brought a small set of bagpipes. Oh, really? <laughs> and I mean, you got to love your crewmates for, you know, <laughs> you know, or they got to love you to, you know, have bagpipes playing, but it was gorgeous. And he yeah. ended up playing Amazing Grace from the space station, you know, down to, down to earth. My friend, Karen, who just recently retired, she's the most amazing artist I've ever met in my life. Incredibly talented. Everything from drawing to playing the piano to quilting and painting. I mean, just incredible. And she sewed while she was on the space station. I mean, it's just a really interesting thing, I think, to look at people and how we use our whole brains versus just, you know, I don't think anyone is really that left or right thing that we talk about, but it's kind of cool to think about astronauts as artists or musicians too. Yeah, yeah. no, it's very cool, isn't it? Yeah. I'm really fascinated to know how you do water. I'm not an artist, um, <laughs> but how on earth do you do it? Lyra's specific question to you is, is how do you do it? How do, why doesn't the paint float away? It, it does float. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I would have activated my brain cells to videotape the whole thing because I think it would have been such a cool way to just show what it's like to live in this microgravity environment in general. I mean, everything floats. You float, water floats, the paper, the paintbrush will float if you let go of it, all of it. So you have to be very organized with how you do things. To the painting question, you know, we're traveling at what, 17,500 miles an hour, which is about five miles a second. So you're not going to be floating in front of the window painting, right? Because whatever you, I mean, you could, but what you're not painting what you see out the window because at that speed, it's going to be gone before you can get the brush to the paper. So I took a picture of what I wanted to paint, which was this beautiful small chain of islands on the northern coast of Venezuela called Las Rocas. And I remembered when I looked out the window that to me, it looked like somebody had reached down with a big paintbrush and painted a wave on the ocean. It was just stunning. So printed out a picture of that, got myself all set up and organized. Velcro is everywhere. We stick things everywhere with, with Velcro and just painted. And, you know, you can't dip your brush into a cup of water because water doesn't sit in a cup like that. So I squirted out from my a drink bag, just these tiny little balls of water and dipped the brush into it. And that I think was my first like, wow, this is so different because as I took the brush, you know, the tip of the brush to the, the ball of water, it's like even before it physically touched it, it's like the ball of water wanted to move over on the end of the brush. And then I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, it's not mixing with the bristles like it would on the ground. It's like this floating ball of water on the end of the brush. And then I had to very carefully move it to the paint and before the ball of water got to the paint, it's like the paint sucked the water onto the, the palette. And then I just mushed it all around and then really cool was able to pull off this colored ball of water and watch it on the end of the brush. And then the first time I touched it to the paper itself, I discovered that, wow, if I actually touch the brush to the paper, that whole entire colored ball of water just gets sucked, <laughs> gets sucked into it. So I couldn't really just paint with the brush. I had to drag the colored ball of water along the paper. And it was just this this really cool, different experience. And I'm so thankful that somebody encouraged me to bring my paints with me because I I don't know that I would have thought to do that on my own either. Just like picking up the pen and filling out the application. I don't know I would have thought to do it on my own. Yeah. Can you remember? Yeah, absolutely. Um, My friend, Mary Jane Anderson, um, she was 
one of our like flight crew equipment people and crew support people on the ground. And she was the person that was responsible for helping me get whatever I was going to take with me to station ready to go. And that was the official stuff. And it was also this little bag of like personal things that we could take. Good. And she just reminded me, she's like, Nicole, you know, you're living there. You should think about, you know, the things you enjoy doing on earth, you might be able to take with you. And in that spare time that you'll have, you might enjoy doing it there. Yeah. yeah. So what with the little, is it like a particular weight that you can carry? So you... I didn't pay much attention to the weight. It was like, you know, kind of a small duffel bag size thing. And, you know, mostly what I would have thought of um, without her encouragement was, you know, like a t-shirt from my high school, you know, to wear and show people that in space, you know, to share the experience in some way. I brought a lot of pictures up of my family and friends. So, you know, I could take a picture of their picture in space and uh, my son's little stuffed animal, little dog, speaking of dogs, um, you know, that was about on cue, right? About this big with me and, you know, things like that. Uh, but I'm so thankful to her for encouraging yeah. me. To where's, do that. where's the painting now? Where's, where's that? The original uh, I just received back. It was on display at the Smithsonian Air and Space for uh, a little over a year, and they're doing a big remodel now. So they've, yeah. they've got a print on display. It was, to me, a very personal highlight of the spaceflight experience was the opportunity to, to paint in space. Yeah. And it allows me now, I think, to share it in a really kind of unique way with audiences that might not even know or think about the fact that we have a space station and all this work that's going on hmm. that's about improving life here on Earth. Do you meet people who don't know that there's an International Space Station? I do. I meet a lot of people who don't know. Yeah, I meet a lot of people who don't know. Uh, I have to kind of go all namaste on it and just realize that everybody does it now. But I consider it my mission to share that with them and to dispel any misunderstanding they might have and to encourage them on their phone to put the app. You know, there's these two apps, Spot the Station, I think ISS Tracker are the two that I know of. And you put your city in and you can watch the space station fly from horizon to horizon. You know, and you can imagine the six people on board that are representing together, representing 15 different countries, you know, there and working peacefully and successfully every day to improve life on Earth. I think it's just something everyone needs to know. It is. Absolutely. (laughs) I I agree completely. And I do do that. I do. Yeah. Thank you. I just remembered, actually, I was in the Lake District actually sitting in the place where I eventually got married, we put a marquee in this very spot where I was sitting, looked oh. up and saw the last delivery to the International Space Station from a shuttle. I saw the International oh. Space Station and the shuttle following it. Isn't that cool? Distance. It was so amazing. Trail in each, I mean, it's just yeah. really, really neat. Yeah. And you can do that now too. You know, the cargo vehicles that come to station, you can watch them as they're chasing the station down and then you can watch them, you know, departing if you know when to look. And that's why those apps are so great. Yeah. doesn't necessarily happen over the top of you all the time, but you know, no, yeah. But you were uh, the last crew member to leave the International Space Station and return to Earth on the shuttle, right? Yes, as a long duration crew member, I was the last one to come home on a space shuttle. Yeah. And then later this month, the first people to launch into space from America since the shuttle retired are going up. Yeah. Right? 
I yeah, um, that's, I feel, I feel good about it. You know, I'm not in the know of how they're managing all of it and everything, but from the standpoint of us launching crew from here again, of getting going with that. And, you know, next week is really exciting to me. The two gentlemen that are flying, Bob and Doug, are classmates of mine. And their, their spouses, Karen and Megan, are classmates of mine. So all of us, you know, came into the astronaut world at the same time. And our class name is The Bugs, so we always joke about bugs in space and stuff, and, uh, <laughs> which might not be very appropriate right now with everything that's going on. From a very personal level, it's significant to me. It's exciting. Um, and then from a professional, just, you know, what we need to be doing in the world of spaceflight level, it's, it's exciting to me. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, you don't have to answer this, but I'm just intrigued. <laughs> so what, do you know, you have no idea what's going on, why people are resigning and things? Do you have an idea? I have absolutely no idea. It was as much as a surprise to me. I, I hope there's an important reason for having done that at this time, you know, with respect to what's happening, you know, very historical milestone wise next week. But really, I, I, have, I have no comment because I have, no yeah. knowledge okay. <laughs> you know I'll, probably I'll, no more than what you've read yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an odd one isn't it what i would say mm. is it, it's an odd time to resign from that role. yeah yeah um it, it worries me some but um i think there are plenty of very very sensible people there right and we shouldn't worry yeah too. that's my hope too i always even when i was flying that was my you know was my hope and that and and that was my understanding of it too um and as a person who had worked at kennedy space center for what was it, was there almost 10 years working like hands-on with the people that are hands-on with those vehicles and knowing that you know that group of people i think if you if you speak to anyone in the space industry kind of in general it's not just a job it's like a passion thing really and it's i knew that those folks were doing everything they humanly could to take care of those spacecraft i mean they believed the care and feeding of them was their responsibility right which ultimately meant they were doing it because they knew they were you know putting the warm fleshy ones on there to fly and come home safely so uh yeah yeah, that's, you know, that's what I'm counting on for next week, too. Yeah, absolutely. You'll be yeah. watching, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I am going to hop in the car and drive over there. My son, I think he needs to see this. And, you know, they're, they're not letting anybody really on site for it, but there's a nice beach there. It's sad because I promised yeah. Lyra a few years ago that when they did start launching people in space again from America, we'd be there. Two reasons were not. One, it came sooner than I thought. And, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, see? <laughs> not that a lot of people thought, I would say. <laughs> or maybe hoped. Maybe hoped is the word. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah maybe. And uh, two is obviously the lockdown, so we can't do it. But we'll be watching, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I'm thankful that you're watching. I really, I th and with her, too. I think it's really important for all of us to be paying attention to these kinds of things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, a rocket launch without people on it. I've spoken to a few people who have put amazing payloads of science equipment that go up into yeah. space, satellites and things, you know, yeah. science experiments going up into space. And just watching it as a, a member of the public is, is an incredible yeah. experience. But you add people into the mix and it's just that little bit more exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We have a relationship with each other, I think, even if we don't know each other, you know. And uh, yeah, I get goosebumps just thinking about just watching a launch in general. You know, I'm on the west coast of Florida, and of course, 
Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center on the East Coast, so about 150 miles away. But from here, if it's clear across the state, you can. We have this spot in our street where we go. We, you know, between those two buildings is where we should expect to see a light and a trail at least. Oh, and it's it's so cool. And I think people don't realize, even you know, from 150 miles away in pretty much any direction, you can spot it if you if you're looking. Oh. Um, and there's ways, you know, there's such cool ways for you guys to be able to watch from there too. That yeah, absolutely, yeah, we, like we we get a NASA TV and project it and sit in the show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's really really good. Yeah. It's not as good as watching it live, obviously. As I just go back into you being in space and you, you yeah. come into land on the shuttle. There's no power in that. It's a no power bit of. I mean, it's, I don't know how heavy it is, but it's heavy, right? Yeah. That's an incredible bit. You're an engineer. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. It's very brick-like as it, as it comes back in. There's not a lot of aerodynamics in it. Um, they incorporated that really just for that final, you know, flight through the atmosphere to get what you needed aerodynamically or, you know, in a way for it to fly. But it's so, I mean, even though from an engineering standpoint, I know it's like watching big tankers float across the ocean. I'm like, I know how that works, but it just doesn't seem quite like that should happen. Um, You know, and the same thing is true. You know, you talk about a a space shuttle, you put all of this energy into it on the shuttle. It was, it was about 7 million pounds of thrust just to get out of this gravity pit that we have, you know, this, what's holding us down here on earth to get to space and to be able to orbit the planet and stay in orbit. And now you got to slow down and come home. And so you're basically having to dump all of that energy, you know, as you reenter the atmosphere. So things get really hot, you know, you're going really fast. You're trying to do that in all these different ways. And just to get slowed down from 17,500 miles an hour to about 190 miles an hour landing. And that's a lot of energy to dump. Yeah. And, but, you know, I'll tell you, on the shuttle, I, I look forward to the time when we're landing on a runway again. Yeah. That is the way human beings should come back from, yeah. from space. Yeah. I'm sorry, this little chirp, you know, of the wheels on the runway and then the yeah. wheel stop and just yeah. this graceful gliding reentry that was yeah. so comfortable. Yeah. So you're not jealous of the Soyuz reentry then? Well, you know, I'm not, not from that standpoint, but I would have loved to do it. I would have loved to, to do it. I mean, I trained for that. Um, there was one iteration of my first flight where I would have gone up on shuttle and down on Soyuz. And, uh, you know, I was hopeful for that from the standpoint of just experiencing both. Yeah, I love that. I love that I got to fly on the space shuttle. I mean, I had worked so personally with them throughout my earlier career and just to you know, just to experience it physically in the vehicle itself, but to know I had this connection with the people that um, had yeah. worked on it too was yeah. really important. That's really awesome. Yeah. You did the Canada Arm too, didn't you? Do the first use of it or something? Is that right? Well, it wasn't the first use of the arm itself. It was the first use of the arm to grab one of the cargo vehicles that kind of flies up to us and then is in, you know, kind of synchronous flying and we have to reach out and grab it. And we fly the arm very differently for that because the cargo vehicle isn't like stuck to something and sitting perfectly still. It's free flying. So we fly the arm a lot more aggressively to capture those vehicles. Um, They're only about 
30 feet from the station at that point. So, you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to perturb it to cause it to maybe um, to hit the station or get out of control in some way. And yeah, that, that was a, you know, as a crew, we did that. I flew the arm, but I had my crewmate, Frank Davino was monitoring all the systems and making all the calls for me. Um, Bob Thirsk was doing some other monitoring and helping with like distance things. And I flew hands-on with it. Your daughter will know if she plays any kind of video game. You know, I'm, I'm convinced our kids could do all this with like the left side of their brain tied behind their backs or whatever. But this was a thing that I felt like I didn't realize how much weight I felt until after we were done. We had successfully grappled it. Um, it was hanging out there on the end of the arm. And I just looked around at my crewmates and we all just, it was like this beautiful sigh of relief, right? And just this relaxation. And then I thought it was just me, but we had to do some commands on the computer afterwards just to you know get the configuration right and everything. And every single one of us, our hands were just kind of had this like little tremor to them, you know, like, okay, now all of the adrenaline has been released. You've successfully done this thing. You can be a human being now and <laughs> respond to it. Yeah. And I, I felt I felt better that I wasn't the only one that was like, wow, that was a big deal. Yeah. And yeah, that was pretty cool. And now we do that. Um, crewmates, you know, the crew up there are doing that a lot now. Um, most of the cargo vehicles we have kind of come out there, hover, and we reach out and grab them. The Soyuz and the Progress vehicles, they automatically dock. The vehicle that Bob and Doug are going to fly on next week. That's a automatic docking protocol with manual backups. But it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to, mm. to fly that arm and to see how it works. I mean, it's so cool. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Isn't it? it's amazing. <laughs> are they, are, are Bob and Doug coming back on the Soyuz? No, they're coming back on the Dragon as well. So oh. they'll do a full, you know, mission profile of what the crew Dragon will do. Okay. And I'm not sure how long they're staying, if it's like a month or so on station. So they're, they're doing a little bit of that too to see, I don't know if they've defined yet what their actual length of stay on the station will be at this point. It's just not going to be a quick turn though. You know, they're going to get up there. I think they want to see how the vehicle responds to being um, docked to the station for some length of time and run through those system checks as well as, you know, undocking and coming home. Mm. Yeah. You, you've spoken a bit about this, but we are all in lockdown of some sort or other all around the world. And you've been in space, sort of in a lockdown with your spacewalk and with other people, almost like with your family on there. Have you got some advice for us? I try to look at it really simply, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, the astronaut thing to life here and what we're going through now. And, you know, there is the argument, I wanted to go live in space, right? I, I made a choice to do that. I understood I was going to be in this relatively confined space with these five other people for more than three months. And I wasn't going to be able to just hop in my Soyuz and come home anytime I wanted to, you know, that was not an option. So I think to me, there's a lot of things, but I think to me, the, the number one thing is to figure out how, in whatever way you're having to live here now, right? How to make a connection, how to understand the interconnectivity of all of this. And in space, that was looking out the window. I mean, it really was. It was looking out the window towards Earth, understanding that that's, 
you know, oh my gosh, I live on a planet. <laughs> I'm an earthling. Only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere, right? And, and making a connection to that and really just refamiliarizing myself with what was around me, right? Enjoying that new introduction to it. And that's what I'm trying to do here at home. I'm looking out the window at my backyard in a new way. I'm even looking at maybe some would say the clutter around me and understanding in a new way, taking advantage of the time I do have with my son and my husband and my dogs here and appreciating it differently. And that's, I mean, I think that's been the biggest kind of soul enriching thing for me was to look at, okay, how positively can I appreciate what I have around me in a new way? And, and I know that's difficult for people who are in different situations. It's not an easy thing to say, oh, look out your window and appreciate it. But I think we all can find some peace in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the biggest thing to me in all this is we can do this. I mean, we can rally together as a planet of earthlings to behave like crewmates. I mean, right now we're not choosing this, but we know it's the reality and that our job <laughs> is to do these things for the sake of our own family and for the sake of, you know, all the earthlings that we are crew with here. You know, it's not just about one or the other of us. It's about, you know, saving all of us. So, which is exactly what we're doing on a space station. Yeah. You know, something goes wrong there and, you know, it's not only the Russian crewmates are going to, you know, we, we rally as one crew to, to save the whole crew and then move forward, hopefully learning from that experience. Absolutely. I think there's one other thing I just wanted to ask actually, which is that the um, at the end of this, at the end of your time in space, I think most of us probably have one or two people who we're not in lockdown with, who we can't wait to see again. Can you tell me about seeing your family again after spending all that time in space? Yeah, that, um, you know, I get asked, you know, what were you afraid of while you're there? And then there's a question, you know, what, what could have made the experience better? Absolutely. Having my family in space with me would have made that experience better. My son was seven when I flew the first time. My husband is an avid space person, would do great and would love to be there. Um, so sharing it that way would have been awesome. But getting home, and I think we're all looking forward to this. There is something about human beings and physical contact, not just physical, I get to touch you, but physically being in the same place and having eye contact, right? This is great, but I look forward to meeting you in person. I, you know, I mean, honestly, there's, a, there's something about that need, I think, that we as human beings have to, to be in the same room, to be in the same place, to you know, get the vibe from each other. And man, I, I, that was like the highlight of coming home and you know, that first view of my son and my husband um, after getting off the, the crew vehicle and my son had, he was going through that phase, you know, where the teeth are falling out and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he had lost one of them before I left. And then he like saved this front tooth dangler for me, you know, wanted me to see that when I got home. And I mean, that thing was hanging on by a thread. He's like, you know, looking at it, it was just such a cool thing that having seen that on video wouldn't have been the same. <laughs> Yeah. That's, yeah. Brilliant. that's brilliant wonderful stuff on, on that note i'm going to go and squeeze lyra that's what i'm going to do okay do um, it do yeah. it please say hi for me to her and um yeah, do. i look forward to meeting you all in person sometime yeah that'll be lovely thank you all so right. much Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much to Nicole Stott for talking to me. We have had some pretty wonderful conversations here on the Cosmic Shed over the years. I have to say that was one of my 
absolute favourites, a really wonderful treat to be able to speak to Nicole and I hope you enjoyed listening to it and we won't be stopping there because next week we'll be bringing you a conversation with Sasha Sagan, the daughter of Andrian and Carl Sagan and the author of a new book for small creatures such as we. If the names Andrian, Carl Sagan and the words for small creatures such as we don't mean very much to you, then you have some homework to do. Sorry for my slightly hushed tones. I'm recording this in the middle of the night and trying not to wake people up. But I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll see you soon. And thank you once again to Will Mountford from the Eureka Nerd podcast for stepping into the breach and editing this episode of The Cosmic Shed. And thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. A friend of mine who does kind of these still... He's very into meditation and has had real success with sharing that. He just shared this. His name is Tom Cronin. He's got this stillness project. It's really great. And he's based out of Australia right now. But he shared in his newsletter what we think we become. Yeah. And it's very much that see it, be it. I have a motto that I keep with me everywhere that from one of my bosses at, and mentors, best friends at work through all my time with NASA, that's here's how we can, not why we can't. I mean, those kinds of things that I think if you get them, you know, in the front of your brain a little bit, you start living that way. And so maybe that's what we just need to be pushing out there from the hopeful standpoint is that, you know, these kinds of things do work. You know, we wouldn't go to space without that kind of philosophy.